Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Chris Munderlich. And we are talking about a couple of amazing Larry Cohen movies. We're talking about Q, the Winged Serpent, and Bone, aka Housewife. Uh, these are freaking amazing films. I've also seen uh, God Told Me To, another Cohen movie. And um, all all of these movies have been just total trips. Yeah, after seeing both of these, I'm definitely going to go back and forward and watch as many Larry Cohen movies as I can. That's for sure. So, And there's also a documentary about Larry Cohen. Uh, Yeah, I just watched the trailer and I'm excited to watch that documentary too. King Cohen, right? King Cohen, yeah. I watched it last night. And um, why don't I start by talking about who he was? Yeah. So Larry Cohen was and he uh, was born in the, uh, I think, 1920. Wait. Born 1936, died 2019. He was a writer in the golden age of TV. Yeah, he wrote episodes of like Naked City and uh, the Craft Playhouse and U.S. Steel Playhouse and stuff at a very precocious age. They, they talk in the documentary about he was like 19 when he sold his first script. Jeez. And basically the man was writing scripts for his entire life. Um, by the mid 60s, when he was in his 30s, he was creating just slews of ideas for new TV series and launched three or four different shows. One of the most famous of which is called the invaders, which yeah. was essentially taken away from him by producer Quinn Martin, but was like this parable of uh, fear of the, the communist menace in the United States. Okay. Really uh, intriguing uh, component to that. Um, he also created a kind of gritty cop show called NYPD, not NYPD blue, but NYPD, which ran in the late sixties. And um, he wrote Westerns, he wrote all kinds of different material. And he was just one of these guys who was just incredibly prolific. They talk in the, in the documentary about how even in his 60s and 70s, he was still writing movie scripts and selling them and TV scripts and selling them. In fact, it's ironic to mention NYPD because he wrote a script for NYPD Blue in the <laughs> 90s. In fact, he repurposed one of his scripts for that. And he was writing essentially right up until the time he died, more or less. Um, and wow. if you look at his, uh, if you look at his filmography on IMDb, you see he wrote things like even the two thousands. He wrote that Colin Farrell movie Phone Booth. I loved that movie. Another when I saw it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And just a just a great movie. Uh, so he was just one of these very prolific guys, but also one of these people who just had to do things his own way. Yeah. And so uh, by the early 70s, he had been writing his own scripts, obviously, for many years and decided to uh, go off and make his own movies. First one of which was Bone from Mm -hmm. 1972, uh, starring Yafet Koto, uh, along with Andrew Dugan and Joyce Van Patten and a few other folks. Uh, Quite a wild, interesting movie. Uh, Maybe wild isn't the right word for it. Um, I should say there will be spoilers for what it's worth for these movies that are, you know, six, 50 years old or so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with that intro monologue, you, you were saying you really enjoyed Bone. Yeah. Um, Bone was very interesting. Um, it was, boy, it starts off, and I think maybe the first half of Bone is what you would expect. And then it takes a big old turn at the halfway point goes in some crazy directions and when it gets back on track 
Oh, it crosses that finish line in style, you know? I should say it's a uh, home invasion story. Yafushikoto yeah. invades the house of this uh, rich suburban couple and um, ends up kind of having power over the two of them. And yeah. he is portrayed in a really kind of interesting and probably inconsistent way. Very inconsistent, yeah. Which Perfectly, I'm sure. Which kind of comes around at the end and makes perfect sense. I don't know about perfect sense. Okay. <laughs> but it's interesting. Which makes, I thought, good sense. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I guess the movie opens up and we, and we meet the, the older rich couple and they're very miserable and we can tell that they're very rich. And Yafikoto comes on the scene and he's smiling wildly and he seems friendly and then he seems creepy and then he drags them into their own house. And I always found it very interesting how... Um, and I think he, there was definitely a point being made how, you know, he, this is a home invasion story and he sort of kidnaps these two people in their own home, but he doesn't like bring a gun or any weapon of any sort. They're just so intimidated by this giant black guy uh, who is so foreign and scary to them that they kind of do whatever he says just because he threatens them and, you know, looks like he could probably snap them in too. There's no explanation of who he is, where he comes from. Uh, why he even appears at their house yeah there's very he, he gets very little backstory he, he mentions a little bit later that you know he's almost a professional rapist which is a horrible thing but he, he, he grew up poor obviously um uh, there's that scene where he's talking about the cockroaches he had to smash in his home as a kid and how you know he would save up all the popsicle stick wrappers there's there's little moments of um, almost sympathy for this guy, but then at the same time he's still very much a criminal. Yeah, he's still very much a criminal. He's, he's still very much wants to manipulate the situation, but he also like he doesn't want to completely destroy Joyce Van Patten, the wife's world either. Uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting how we like she needs to be a certain way for him to be able to have sex with her because he, he doesn't want to, well, no, he says, he does say he, he likes it best when they fight with him, but then mm-hmm. he really only seems to like her when she doesn't fight with him. Um, when she's kind of seems to soften towards him, which is really odd. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So I guess the, the plot from here is, you know, he tells uh, the man of the house to go down to the bank and withdraw a whole bunch of money and bring it back. You know, and if he doesn't, he'll, you know, rape and kill the wife. Right. right? So we've and the got man the of the house has no real money. They're actually broke. And we have that kind of all play out too, where we find yeah. out this car dealer is completely screwed up financially. Oh, okay. So that, yeah. I, and I love how they, they make this guy like a used car salesman kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they have all the, it opens with a really cool scene. And then we get a few more really cool, almost dream sequences of this guy starring in, his used car commercials and he's saying, Oh, you know, come down big old sale. Da, da, da. And the first time we see him, there's all these dead bodies in the car and it's at a junkyard. And, you know, you think maybe that definitely sets up the movie thematically. It doesn't have any direct correlation to the plot, but it puts you in such a cool mood. Talk about a scene that just grabs you right from the very beginning. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's no, 
there's no big setup here, you know, with the long shots of Beverly Hills and, you know, Bob Newhart-esque music playing. This is just like, <laughs> put you into these like wretched rich people's lives. That first scene is, yeah, it was remarkable, right? From the minute yeah. I, I saw that, I was like completely captivated in the movie. It's like, you know, the first few lines of a short story being these grabbing lines you must read forward because he's there and he's doing his you know car salesman pitch the camera's tied on his face and you're like okay come down to to joe to uh bill's motors and we'll have the best deals for you and then pans out slowly and then you see he's in the junkyard yeah and the cars are all smashed and then the camera pans around and you see dead faces and bodies inside all the cars and then he seems to like panic a little bit yeah and then it cuts away to to the couple of bickering at their pool. Yeah. And it's like, what the fuck did I just see? And what, what's going to happen now? <laughs> it was a very cool opening. And I love how they uh, they don't just sit on that. They play with it a few more times throughout the movie. Yeah. And it really gives you an insight into what this character is thinking. It's so much better than having like his internal monologue, right? Instead, you have these like weird little used car salesman dreams that sort of explain what he's thinking in these twisted ways oh very good very cool this to me is like the genius of the single like writer director producer yeah he's just has this idea he's just going to go for it completely the budget's so small it doesn't necessarily matter no one's going to look over his shoulders his own project anyway so he just kind of goes for it in this movie it's also a first film and it feels like a first film in part because like it, there's a few things that are awkward about it, but also in part yeah. because there's just a sense of him having these ideas he's been wanting to play with for a long time. He finally gets to execute on them. Yes, there's definitely a few ideas in this movie that <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say were confusing, but I, uh, yeah, a producer would have definitely said, you know, maybe we can turn the corner on this one. Maybe we can add in something a little more conventional, something that makes a little more sense here. You know, this is definitely him saying, I have this idea. And you know what? We have the camera. Let's just go shoot it. Uh-huh. Right? And yeah, you're right. It definitely feels like a first film because, you know, the camera work is very uneven. Um, sometimes it's very boring. Sometimes it's very like, oh, okay. He was trying to do something interesting there. Uh, sometimes, you know, he does those those classic, like, cheap 70s movies, super quick pan and super quick cut. Yeah. You know, all these weird camera tricks that you've seen before. The editing isn't very good. Um, but then other times it's like, whoa, whoa, where'd that, where'd that shot come from? Like, that shot takes your breath away. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, this choice of editing, whoa, well, that hit me hard. You know, I didn't know if this guy knew what he was doing putting together this movie. And then he pulls out this shot and this editing trick and suddenly, oh man, you know, but it's, it's very uneven. It's very, he's finding his footing as a director. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't say his, his other movies are more, less uneven. <laughs> okay. the 70s. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you, you saw that in the wing serpent by the eighties, like it, it's got its awkward moments. It's but definitely I think, uneven. I think yeah. those moments really add to the charm of the film too. Oh, yeah, you get a sense that this is like low budget picture, but done as well as a low budget picture has ever been done. You know, I mean, the, on the on the uh, documentary, Scorsese praises him for the okay. kind of loose kind of uh, one of the words that comes up over and over again is improvisational feel to his films. Oh, OK. He deliberately created films that were relatively unstructured. He'd know kind of what he was doing. 
but mm-hmm. he believed that planning a film would kind of destroy the the energy of a film. Yeah, I've I've heard the term uh, guerrilla filmmaker thrown a lot with this guy too, right? Yeah, he's the he, ultimate he guerrilla really filmmaker. He doesn't always ask for permission. He doesn't always get the permits. He goes out there with a handheld camera and sets up the scene and he says, you know, if they think you're shooting a movie, they'll usually allow you to do whatever, you know. Yeah, you can see that throughout Q, right? Yeah. I mean, there's all these scenes set in the streets of New York and it's obvious these are normal people that he's showing. Yeah, it does not look like he set up a film set. It looked like he just followed his actor down the street. <laughs> I don't think there were, I don't think he ever used film sets. Um, the, you know the, the big house, maybe. Okay, you know the pool that yeah. we see at the beginning of this movie is his house. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Lucky and his guy. next film, uh, Black Caesar, has yeah. a whole bunch of scenes around that same pool because he <laughs> he bought the house. It was like a great deal. And his uh, ex wife says in the bit on the documentary, yeah, the, he's made his money back so many times just on the house because he got to save money on sets. <laughs> that's brilliant yeah actually watching bone and seeing all the the handheld camera work and then watching q and again you know pops up this guy uh larry cohen definitely reminded me of like the american version of uh i'm blanking here sorry never mind Oh, oh. I don't know where you were going either. Okay, I'm going to note to edit yeah. that out. Yeah, I have to cut that. Oh, I just watched his movies. Sorry. Fitzcarraldo and uh, German guy. Nosferatu. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What's his name? On the tip of my tongue. I'll make Eric. a point eventually. Kinski, Claudia Cardinal, but who's the director? Uh, Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog, yes. Larry Cohen is the American Werner Herzog. Ah, go on with that. I mean, have you seen a lot of Werner Herzog movies? Not too much. They're very much in the same vein of like, you can tell he just went out on a real set. He had his actors. He had his camera. He didn't ask for permission. He shot something. Something happened in front of the camera that was not expected, and it turned out to be a masterpiece. I've actually only seen documentaries by him. Oh, really? Oh, you, okay. Well, we'll watch Werner Herzog movies later. But Larry Cohen <laughs> is very much like the the taking American culture and taking mm-hmm. like the Werner Herzog film of schooling and putting them together and making these awesome like like what is happening on the screen is cooler than what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, well, he captures everything with such a, such an energy and vitality to it. Oh yeah. So we're going off on a tangent. We should we should stay focused on Bone. Yes. Because you were talking about uh, you while Bill goes to get the money to pay, I guess the character's called Bone. I didn't not sure I picked up on that. Um, Bernadette is home with Bone, and they have this weird kind of cat and mouse thing together, where uh, she almost like wants him to uh, have sex with her. She's just a bored housewife. In, in some ways, a classic like late sixties, early seventies housewife, and he's almost resistant to it. Yeah, well, it, it's that's the thing. The movie stays its course for the first half, and and you see the guy go downtown to the bank and try to, you know, withdraw his money, and it's very tense, right? The drama's built. Bone is at home with the wife, and 
And at first, you know, it is very uh, kind of scary. You know, he is very threatening. And he says, you know, you're going to make eggs and you're going to make them my way. We're going to play a game. You're going to pretend to smash cockroaches. And, you know, he is sort of psychologically torturing her. And uh, I guess it all builds right to the maybe middle of the movie where, you know, there's quite a disturbing attempted rape scene. Yeah. Um, and then it cuts to uh, the guy at the bank decides, you know, he's not going to withdraw the money. Maybe, maybe he'll let his wife be raped and murdered. Maybe the money is more important. Maybe he can just let it all go away. And that's a very cool decision. Very good storytelling decision. Um, but he does go on something of a very strange journey while he's sort of waiting out his wife's demise. Yeah. What did you think about that? Yeah. He gets together with that younger woman. They have their own uh, oddball adventures where she's stealing food in the supermarket and stuff. And it's like, where, where did this come from? Like, why does this all of a sudden kind of pop up in the middle of this movie? The character's just called the girl, as far as I can tell. Yeah, well, I mean, first he goes to a bar and meets Brett Summers for some reason. Yeah. And they start talking about dental x-rays. X-rays destroying your body. I thought it was like her husband's teeth were actually really good, but the dentists kept telling him he needed more x-rays and she was really upset. Uh, it's very like strange story that goes nowhere and is kind of amusing in the moment, but very confusing in the bigger picture. Um, it does give us a little background though. We learned that, that Bill used to do all his car advertisements with a German shepherd. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of learned that he ended up killing this German shepherd, maybe accidentally, maybe out of spite, he ran it over, but the dog's death led to one of his biggest sales days ever. So it sort of becomes clear that he's thinking like, hey, if people pity me, you know, oh, my wife's been murdered. You know, here comes another big sale day for me. Oh, I didn't quite pick up on that. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. well, he has another so one. Like strategically, dreams. yeah. Yeah, where it's like dead wife sale. Everything must go or something. Oh, <laughs> twisted, twisted. Uh, which is interesting. But yeah, his little adventure with this, this girl that you mentioned um, is interesting. You know, she's uh, sort of the the 1970s manic pixie dream girl, right? Mm -hmm. Except turns out to be very disturbed and a victim of abuse as a child. And she steals stuff. And then she seduces the man because he reminds her of her assaulter. Uh, And yeah, and then that goes nowhere. But I I guess there's a point being made there that I I missed. Yeah, I'm not sure I understood the point, though. It's just so... And so it just felt so gross. Yeah, I mean, it's a well-played scene, you know, well-written, well-acted, um, but it, it also mirrors, like, the rape of his wife. Yeah. Uh, and that's it, weird, disturbing. I don't know if I liked it, but it happened. And then the movie gets back on track after that, so it's okay. Yeah, and this is part of the Cohen touch, right, where... It kind of wandered off in the for a little while, and he was improvising. I, I'm not sure it adds to the story, but I think well, I guess it I guess it does because it gives us an idea of who Bill is as a person, right? He's just going to follow his own kind of is not wherever his id leads him is where he's going to go. And we we get the idea he's not he he's kind of not not a contemplative guy. He is a uh, reactor, and, and and he's a manipulator. 
Yeah. And he's just, uh, he's, he's a piece of work. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a big part of him saying like, okay, well, if I don't withdraw this money, my whole life is going to change. Um, probably for the better because my wife will be dead because he's yeah. a jerk but he's but, also yeah sort of finding what his life is going to be right is he going to help people like this lady in a bar with dental x-rays or is he going to just like learn about the world oh this girl she's coming on to me and she has a whole new world of excitement right he's sort of like discovering things as if like he's opening his eyes for the first time right yeah yeah he's intrigued by the girl because she's someone new someone different he's been bickering yeah. with his wife right they're pretty cold towards each other at the very least right and here's this yeah. girl but it turns out she's just as messed up as anyone is in the whole movie right oh, yeah. like you're talking about she's got her abuse you know she lives in this weird grungy apartment with <laughs> odd decorations and then stolen right <laughs> She throws, yeah, she throws her paper plates out in the in the mailbox. What? Okay. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's got little touches that are very amusing while you're watching it, um, but very confusing when you're trying to add it to the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's thematically, though. We, we really do get a sense of who Bill is and, and oh, yeah. liking him even less. Oh, yeah, he's a scumbag. Um, but then, yeah, then there's the equally as strange part that happens back at the home with bone and the wife where you know he tries to rape her then and then he can't so she kind of takes pity on them and then they talk and then she you know seduces him lovingly and they sort of become very close and it really just is uh I and then guess it kind of ba- basically takes bill's place all of a sudden right kind there's a scene of them driving together in the car um he's yeah. wearing you know, Bill's clothes. I'm not sure what fit him, but anyway, that was a good touch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's it's a very like it's an interesting plot, right? Where okay, suddenly the tables are turned. Suddenly these two are together, and uh, they decide to go in and you know take revenge on Bill because you know he left her to die, and they can collect on the insurance money if they kill him because of accidental death, right? Um, and it's a great plot direction, but again, very strange how it went from, well, he's a rapist and he admits to being a rapist and, you know, he's saying, oh, I can only get off if they claw at my face. Yeah. And he's a horrible guy, but then, you know, five minutes later, they're all lovey-dovey and it's like, oh, he just needed the love of a good woman. And it works for the plot, but uh, it really does not sit well. <laughs> it doesn't track well at all. No, no, because he's he's the home invader. He's the rapist. He's the black buck oh i hate even saying those words <laughs> yeah I know. uh but they make a point of calling that out in the script too yeah yeah and well that's it right because they, they throw these little pieces of sympathy towards you and you know he sits down and he talks and he's saying like oh you know uh interracial marriage is such a big problem and stuff and you know he, we do get sort of his background about how this guy and you know i guess they're making a bigger political point about civil rights and everything of the era and you sort of get that flavor of like, oh, yeah, okay, this is dealing with racism and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's being represented by a horrible person doing right. horrible things. Right. Like, you can't quite agree with anyone saying like, you know what, like th- this guy, he, he's actually uh, society made him this way. Well, you know, to a point, but look what he's doing, you know. But do you want to flash forward to towards the end of the movie then? Well, okay. I mean, what... <laughs> I mean, some some interesting stuff happens in between there. I do like how they track Bill down 
Uh, but then it gets very weird and uh, kind of funny when they're chasing him around in the car and he's running through the parking garage. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that scene? Because yeah. I, I laughed and I didn't know if I wanted to. No, it made me laugh. It was so uncomfortable and so weird, right? He's running through the garage. It looks like you barely run. He looks like they're 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 yeah. It's like the worst chase ever. It's the worst chase ever. Yeah, he's doing the high knees and he's uh-huh. in weird suits and um. Again, it, it's so uh, it's captivating from a plot perspective because you're thinking like, oh, they're out to kill this guy and there's nothing he can do. And that comes to a head when they corner him on the bus, right? Mm-hmm. You're thinking there's nowhere for this guy to go. They've got him. You think, okay, Bone and the wife, they're going to be together. Yeah, a, the bus is full of old ladies. <laughs> yeah. And then one's reading a porn magazine. Uh, again, just and then they all disappear when they get to a certain stop, and then it's the last stop on the line. It's like, yeah, it really gets surreal towards the end. It does get surreal, yeah. And again, there's parts that it's like, I'm laughing. Am I laughing because this is low budget and made weird, or is he trying to make me laugh? Because he must be trying, like, I think so, yeah. Um, but when we do get to the end, right, and uh, Bone says, okay, like. They cornered the guy on the beach and he says, okay, well, we're going to kill him now. And the guy's trying to, to talk his way out of it. He's trying to sell him, right? He's saying, I'm a, I'm a salesman. I can buy my way out of this. And it doesn't work. And then the wife ends up brutally murdering her husband and Bone vanishes. And it's really, really satisfying. <laughs> and then she starts telling all these different stories about bone and who he is and what they did together and yeah so was was he real or was he not real well that's kind of what it leaves you with right because it ends with uh the wife uh directing towards the camera right she's talking directly into the camera which is really cool like sometimes that doesn't work but boy it hit the nail on the head in this part uh and the cinematography here the handheld camera work on the beach Mm -hmm. and the sound design you know, lack of sound yeah. and then waves. And, oh, so, so he pulls out a beautiful scene, right? To top off the whole movie and totally sucks you in. And yeah, again, leaves you the question, was Bone real? And I mean, he made the entire movie uh, thinking Bone was real. I mean, you can't piece apart this movie and say, well, maybe Bone wasn't there because it's pretty clear he was. But I, I found it left me with, with questions without satisfying answers. But it was such a cool movie. I didn't really mind that. See, my first reaction watching it was, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I like that ending. And then <laughs> you start to think about the whole movie falls apart if he wasn't real. Yeah, the, it doesn't really work at all. Because, I mean, there are scenes where he's driving a car. He gets on the bus. He talks to characters on the bus. You know, like, like Bone isn't this uh, imaginary character in the wife's mind things happen in the movie where there has to be a person there, you know, like he doesn't, it's not a clever fight club type ending. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I I can buy that. He wasn't there and tore the rat out of the filter of the swimming pool at the beginning and all that stuff. But um, he was, he was the instigator of the action, right? It's the presence of this third party that causes all the chaos in their life, causes Bill to go into town and do all the things he does. And it just doesn't make any sense otherwise, because otherwise they'd just be living this ordinary life. Well, that's the thing, because he does set it up very well. I love the little subplot and the really quick edits of this couple. They have a son 
and they tell everyone that their son is fighting in Vietnam and he's a helicopter pilot. Mm-hmm. But we get all these really quick cuts of this kid just lying in this like concrete cell with one light bulb. And we're thinking like, oh, maybe he was captured in Vietnam or something. And the movie opens up with a little uh, little text about Vietnam, right? How yeah. you know, America is currently sending its boys to die, but you know the real trouble's in Beverly Hills. And again, the ending, we get perfect flash cuts of this kid in the cell. Turns out he was arrested in Spain and spending six years in prison and his parents aren't doing a thing to help him, right? So it's like, oh, these people's lives would self-destruct without bone, right? These people, they set up their life in a way that can only come tumbling down. I'm glad you brought in the idea of him being a prisoner in Spain because <laughs> uh, we get those those weird kind of cross cuts to it. And I wasn't sure at all what to think of that as the movie was going on. Yeah, I mean, it sets it up how, you know, like, it definitely gives the characters this extra dimension of awfulness, thinking like, oh, our son is in Spain, and we didn't even send, like, a lawyer or anything, we're just waiting for the six years to be up, because we can't spend the money, and you just like, oh, you think even worse of these people, Mm -hmm. and the cuts at the end, I didn't really understand, it was very effective, it was very cool, you know, it cuts between the wife saying, oh, you know, yeah, he was an intruder. Oh, oh, big Afro. Oh, big, strong black guy, right? She's making all these racist remarks saying what happened with Bone. And then it cuts to the kid. I think he's trying to commit suicide by like grabbing the light bulb or something. And again, oh man, leaves your heart racing. Leaves you reeling when the credits roll. I don't really understand the point that's being made though. Yeah, I think it has something to do with the trauma they're carrying inside them for the death of their son. But then okay. why, they, why is it manifested with this? That's what I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of this, like, uh, you know, I guess Larry Cohen, you know, I, I mean, he, he's clearly like a pro-civil rights guy, right? He, he's making this movie and I sure, feel yeah. like he's trying to make a point. Um, and again, there's this thing of, you know, bone disappears and it's like, well, you know would this tragedy have occurred if he had not been the catalyst but at the same time the whole movie is about how he's the catalyst of their demise their whole lives are fractured and shattered by the death of their child too and the guilt they feel about that Uh, and so the beginning of the movie was the beginning of the movie where he where we see bill at the you know junkyard is kind of a manifestation of his inner life He's already See, kind I of wonder, broken. He's already I kind of. I don't even know their son's dead, though. There's nothing that indicates they do. They just talk about him. Well, they lie about him, which is yeah. weird, also. Yeah. Well, that makes a little bit of sense, right? Because they don't want to admit that he was trying to smuggle dope in the in Spain and he got arrested, right? They want to make him seem like, oh, you know, we're good people. We have a son in Vietnam, right? So they're trying to build themselves up when really they have this thing eating away at them that their son is rotting in a prison in Spain. You know, um, and again, I, I don't know if there's any any real guilt. I mean, the wife kind of goes back and forth between being guilty and being indifferent. Um, and, you know, just everybody in this movie is horrible. <laughs> it's a great movie, though. Oh, it's captivating. And, and it's cleverly done. And, yeah, it keeps you going. And, I, you know, I, again, I don't know if I understand the point that's being made, but I enjoyed the ride so much. I don't know if I care. I really felt the same way. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I enjoyed Jaffet Koto, who I've been, a, we were talking about him before. We're both big fans of his work. 
Oh, yeah. From this to across 110th Street to Alien to uh, <laughs> Homicide Life on the Street. You know, he played okay. so many different characters and really he, he pulls this character off very well, I think. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. I mean, again, this could have this could have been your typical drive in B movie you know, home invasion story and stuff. But the difference is there's an amazing actor in the middle of this one. <laughs> you know, like he keeps you going through every scene, whether he's evil or I loved his laugh because he looked genuinely like mm-hmm. happy that these people were struggling before he even got into their lives. Like he takes so much pleasure in realizing that these rich people are actually just living horrible lives <laughs> and can, his face is just priceless right you know every moment where he's like oh man you guys are screwed you know like this is turning out so great so let's move over to cue the wing serpent 1982 yeah definitely a later. lighter film well uh, in a way a lighter film <laughs> Yeah, a different film, that's for sure. <laughs> a uh, winged serpent is para- is putting New York City in peril. And in parallel, there is a series of ritualistic Aztec-based murders in New York. Yeah. Ah, what, uh, what an odd movie. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such an interesting concept that I think um, in another director's hands, they would say like, we can make this like Jaws, you know? Uh-huh. Like this could be the Jaws that takes place in the heart of New York City. And Larry Cohen does not do that at all. <laughs> and he makes the weirdest, most original monster picture that you could hope for. <laughs> because it could have just been a basic kaiju. It could have been, yeah. I mean, they could have been like, let's have, let's have a really scary looking monster. You know, let's build a lot of, tension in and set it up seriously but this movie is played uh it's played with tongue in cheek but at the same time everybody on screen no one has phoned it in you know like no. this is again b movie done as well as you could possibly hope for it's got this weird grittiness to it maybe it's because oh, yeah. so much is set in this in the city of new york uh we'll get to the the uh grudginess of the chrysler building in a minute oh yeah uh, but like this is a real feeling of I don't know I guess as much as anything and I know it's made in 1982 but it has this feeling of grungy New York in the 1970s to me oh definitely yeah I mean he's on the street with that camera and you can hear the taxis and you can you know feel the shadows of the building and it, it's a very cool like uh, in your face New York attitude um, but then again it's mixed with uh 1950s you know monster picture uh-huh. and this uh actually pretty well done police procedural as well yeah and the spookiness of the ritual sacrifices yeah which actually, is genuinely creepy to me see that that was a little undercooked in this movie that okay. there are some definitely undercooked elements and one of them is there's this attempted subplot where yeah there's these ritual sacrifices and, you know, they touch on it and you think, again, it, with a lesser director, you would have gotten all the boring scenes of like the ritual and the candles. They would have tried to set up some creepy scene. We get little touches of that. But I have a feeling Larry Cohen was just sort of like, that's no fun. Let's move on to something fun. <laughs> Let's you see know? the stuff we care about. 
Yeah, exactly. Was, Nobody wants to see this boring thing that actually doesn't, you know, lead to any real tension. Let, let's just jump in with the characters we love and get the story rolling. Which is the character stuff and the monster stuff. Yes. Yeah, and I thought, both of them very well. Yeah, it's rare for a movie to work on both sides there, right? Usually the monster stuff is the fun stuff or the character stuff. But like Michael Moriarty in this movie. Oh. Right? Right? And you know what? I love Michael Moriarty because, again, we're talking Yafet Kodo, and I'm thinking, oh, I grew up watching Homicide Life on the Street. I love that guy. Well, I grew up watching Law and Order. And I loved Michael Moriarty, but I didn't see him in too many other things. So here I am expecting this, you know, stoic uh, character, much like his, his lawyer character. Mm-hmm. Oh, completely different. He's, he's manic. He's crazy. He's, uh, he goes from both emotional spectrums all over the place. He's always trying to manipulate people. And he pulls it off so well. Oh, yeah. He's just got this crazy New York manic energy to him. Yeah. Where he's just like, he's nonstop. He's always looking for an edge. He's always looking to make a few extra dollars. Right? Yeah, it makes the deal to, to sell the truth of the serpent, where yeah. the serpent comes from, for a for million dollars. Uh, because, you know, he's, got, he's always got to find an edge that's going to help him. It's not about yeah. doing good. It's not being right. It's about making what you can out of what, what's happening. And they play up the relationship with his, I guess, his girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> yeah, something, yeah. With this tension and kind of weirdness to it. I realize I keep using the word weird and strange around this movie, but like you get this like really kind of three-dimensional sense of who these characters are in relationship with each other. And maybe that's part of what makes these Cohen movies kind of magical is that like none of the characters' relationships feel like they fit inside a conventional box. You know, he he's he loves to have people's relationships people complicated and a little off and not off, but I'll say with complicated because it feels like normal life. Yeah, they're definitely more realistic and it, uh, they definitely don't fit into a conventional movie. Um, you know, this is not like, a, oh, this, this guy who we're rooting for, you know, and Michael Moriarty, his character is not a good guy. You know, oh. again, again, Larry Cohen doesn't have a lot of good guys in his movies, um, but he doesn't set this up as like, oh, he's going to win back his girlfriend. You know, there's just no traditional love story here. It's a very realistic relationship of like, this guy is scheming. This guy has no job. This guy is always looking for, you know, the next scheme kind of thing. And this is the girl who takes pity on him and is maybe a little intrigued, but very frustrated. And they don't have a normal relationship that you'd see in a movie. And it's very refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's what separates him from the, a lot of the other B-movie creators. Is that, And you see also with the relationship between the two cops, Carradine and <laughs> Roundtree, where yeah. they just like, they don't hate each other, but they've got this kind of complicated, fraught relationship that just comes from um, them knowing each other, each other for years. These characters feel lived in, as opposed yeah. to a lot of other B movie directors who will just cast a type, put a type in a role, and that's who you see. These yeah, are the cops are the people. cops are very they're gritty and they're real, and you feel like they've just been cops for a long time. You don't feel like there's a forced rivalry. You don't feel like there's a subplot, right, where these cops are fighting. Each other. No, they just are like, hey, really well written characters, and that's the genius of filming in real places. Yeah. Um, you know, we see them in the police precinct. We see them wandering the streets of New York City. We see them at the Chrysler building, too. And like this, it just gives everything this feeling of, you know, actual realism. 
like you just see them embedded in the world and the cops in this movie who the the, the uh extras are actually real cops <laughs> nice <laughs> did not know that but yeah. i and that's sort of the brilliance of this movie too is he sets it out to be very real you know he's he's got the handheld camera work on the streets of new york and you can tell they're in real places and then when he pulls that monster out and it's very <laughs> purposefully not realistic at all uh you know i guess i guess some people could be really turned off by that you know some people could think maybe he can't have it both ways but it's just also fun you know it is also fun right because you want the scenes where he's carrying off the topless woman you want the scene where he's carrying off the guy uh you know and the end feels a little like king kong where you know the monster is fighting the people at the chrysler building it's just also fun yeah this reminded me of watching Mystery Science Theater, right? Where they would take all the B-movies, all the monster pictures, and they're sitting and they're making their jokes at the screen. And you think, oh boy, these movies are boring. It's a good thing I have someone making these jokes. And it's like, this is a movie that they could tackle, but I would just want them to shut up. Yeah. You know, like, here's, here's your B-movie. But wow, I'm like really intrigued by all this plot that's being created. Like the actors on screen, are 100% better than anyone that was in those old drive-in monster movies. Yeah. Right? The plot is actually well thought out and has a lot of tension and a lot of cool set pieces and a lot of interesting camera work. You know, the monster is, again, straight out of one of those old creature features. But it's, like, really amusing when it comes on screen and they have to fight it off with machine guns, you know? You see the evolution of a skill set. Oh, yeah. It's just a better made movie. Than both oh, the ones. editing is tight. The camera work is confident. It's still not perfect. You know, he still has like these weird little additions, these weird quirks. But then he'll pull off a, a shot that's like, wow, where'd that come from? I just love watching the serpent fly around the city. <laughs> you got those overhead views of it, too. Yeah. Obviously, just stock footage images. You've spliced in the, the monsters. It's like, just fun. It's yeah, and fun. Again, you have to suspend your disbelief, right? Even the cop says, oh, maybe he, maybe this giant winged dragon, uh, maybe he flies right where the sun is. So whenever people look up, they can't actually see him. The scene where he, we see the blood dripping down because <sighs> the monsters carried off somebody. Oh, and it just hits people's faces. That's so, this amazing, well done little scene. I bet every B-movie director from the 60s that made driving creature features saw this and said, you know what? That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. My cheesy thing didn't turn out so well, but man. <laughs> why did this why did this guy's scene turn out so well? Yeah, how did how did he pull off this like very strange combination of themes and genres and styles to make such an entertaining movie? Uh, and the plot, you know, is actually usually these creature features have oh just doll plots that are an excuse for the monster to show up right but i loved michael moriarty's journey as like failed jazz pianist which he mm-hmm. was a very good pianist in real life too and it's like oh right. nice little addition and his little crime caper where he's stealing the jewels and trying to avoid the cops and the gangsters you know and that's like short oh, scene where he's he's running and he gets hit by the car and the jewels fly to the middle of the street and then he loses them <laughs> oh my god that's just a great scene it's great, yeah. And, and then again, he runs it to Chinatown or wherever he goes to, and he just gets lost in the crowd. And you get this feeling like 
crime's just rampant in New York. These are just things that happened in 1982 and <laughs> just shows how fucked up the city was. Yeah, I mean, he had a good crime movie, right? Larry Cohen wrote a good crime movie and said there's going to be this heist, there's going to be this character that is a bad person, but you're going to root for him. You know, we're going to have these cops and they're going to be, uh, you know, David Carradine plays a really cool detective guy who's, uh, you know, a little hesitant about the whole Aztec thing, but tries to convince everyone else. You know, so there, there's like a lot of good elements. And then, and then he adds the ridiculous stop motion dragon on top. And it's like, oh, he had three good movies lined up and yeah. he combined them and somehow it did work. It works really well. Yeah. And, you know, it keeps, it keeps a good pace. You're never bored with this movie. You know, and uh, it's just so well acted and so well shot. And the ending pays off. <laughs> it's an interesting ending, yeah. <laughs> First of all, I thought the Chrysler building was actually a lot nicer inside than it ends up that it was. Wow, what a grungy piece of, I use that word all the time. When it looked like it was just like a warehouse or something. It looks amazing from the outside, but on the inside, it's kind of just an ordinary place. Yeah, I'm very impressed that they got to use the real building. That's has to be the feat. real building, right? Quite a feat because you really do get a sense of vertigo with this movie too. Right. Yeah. I mean, oh, that sense of like I'm on the top floor of a building. Now I'm going to climb this ladder, and then I'm going to climb this ladder, and the wind is whistling, and there's pigeons up there, and it's kind of terrifying. He didn't even need to put a monster up there. But that's just icing on the cake. You oh know? my god! Yeah, just being up there in, the, in those buildings, in those windows, and yeah. it's all open to the world too. And it's like sixty <laughs> stories up over New York City. Yeah, the scenes where the the cops are shooting at the bird, uh, the serpent, and and they get knocked by the serpent down to the street. Oh my god! It's like literally like so so terrifying to me. That's my well, worst nightmare. It, it, it looks super cheesy, on, but yeah. <laughs> It's terrifying until they show it on screen and you see this little clay figure sort of tumble. Ah! But watching the guys in a basket with a machine gun hanging off the side of the Chrysler building, that's terrifying. Oh my God. And that's so cool too, right? Exactly what what you want to see in a a movie like this. Yeah. And you know, there's just enough, there's just enough levity, right? There's just enough like tongue in cheek humor kind of thing. He doesn't, he doesn't make this a comedy or anything, but uh, I loved the scene how, you know, you think the movie's wrapped up, and then we get the scene of the, the Aztec priest coming to kill Michael Moriarty, right? And it sort of seems a little tacked on because that, again, that plot really didn't go anywhere. You didn't learn anything about this character or what he was doing. It's just like, oh, here's a crazy guy, and he brought the serpent <laughs> back to life. But then David Carradine has to shoot him like 10 times before the guy goes down. He turns around and goes, that guy was pretty hard to kill. <laughs> you know, it's not even played for laughs but it is funny you can't help but laugh right yeah yeah so many things about this movie you can't help but you know the monster comes down and picks up richard roundtree and you see like this giant rubber claw just come out of uh-huh. the side of the frame to pick him up and, you know you love this character and you love what's happening and it's silly and it's fun and it's intriguing even though it's cheesy the monster grabbed Shaft. What happened? Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was not expecting such a such a successful combination of themes. I agree. 
and it all stays so light the entire time. But it feels it's light, but it feels like it still has substance to it. It's this amazing trick he does. Yeah, and maybe yeah, I mean, because, maybe the substance comes from it being all guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah, and therefore it feels like it could be okay. It couldn't be, but it could be from the actual streets of New York, you know. And because of that, like it just gives everyone everything just a little more energy or. I'm going to hesitate to use the word realism, but like to me, the <laughs> ultimate Larry Cohen scene is there's a scene in God told me to that um, he filmed at a St. Patrick's day parade. And there's hundreds of police officers marching in the St. Patrick's day parade. And um, basically the, the, the story is that um, for some reason, people are suddenly seized by the idea that God tells them to murder other people. Yeah. And so there's a, a cop actually played by Andy Kaufman and God told me to, who's, who marches in this parade and then goes crazy and starts killing people. And the crowd of people gathered around him and basically, uh, you know, try and try and take care of him, air quotes, as he does that. So Cohen takes this actual parade, puts Coffin on the side of the parade and has him just kind of march along with him. So like the crowd had no idea what was going on. <laughs> wearing his policeman's uniform he looks like he could be a cop and then he stages this this event and then like the people he just basically filmed everybody's reactions to the event how did he not go to jail that sounds amazing <laughs> well, there's another movie i think it's in black caesar where he actually drives taxi cabs on the sidewalks in new york city Oh boy, without a permit. And apparently he didn't have clearances for for (laughs) to do that. People were actually just scattering and they were talking in the documentary about how uh, they're New Yorkers, so they just treated this like just another weird thing that happened in their day. I caramba. I need to watch both those movies, I think. (laughs) So, um, but that's the weakness and the strength of these movies. Mm -hmm. Plus the improvisational feel. Like I think a lot of what we're grooving on here is this improv feel right maybe he said you know that the sacrifices yeah okay i gotta include them but that's not what i really care about what i really care about is my buddy moriarty is so fun to to see on screen i just want to give him more and more scenes moriarty yeah. loved him too they oh, were friends good. and they made a couple movies together and you know the, the affection between the two of them is so obvious oh yeah and again now that you've told me you know that larry Cohen was a big writer uh you know for cop shows way back in the day that makes perfect sense for this movie because I felt like I was watching an episode of, you know, not Dragnet, but something a little less serious where the cop goes and, oh, look, there's this prominent museum curator and he's going to explain to me all the horrors and we're going to walk down. Look at this statue of Quetzalcoatl. And it's like, yeah, this felt like it was straight out of the 60s television cop scene, you know? <laughs> I would totally watch that show too. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I would go look for that right now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he um, actually did a, a show a episode of a show together with Moriarty. So there's okay. the Masters of Horror, which is a 90s anthology series that was it. on Showtime. Um, and they gathered together people like John Carpenter and Joe Dante to do uh, hour-long short films with no... Con- no. They gave him a budget, said, create your film. We're not going to do anything to control what you create. And... Um, uh, they were talking about how uh, Michael Moriarty and Larry Cohen did, the, did an episode together and it, it looks really interesting. It's about a hitchhiker who gets picked up by a trucker who might be terrorizing a girl who's also in his truck and 
They didn't reveal much about it, but it's probably available on YouTube. I watched the Carpenter films both on YouTube. Interesting. Yeah, they're the Carpenter episodes are very good. See, that's something that sounds very intriguing to me, but I'm a little afraid of it being like high budget '90s television. Uh, but I'm intrigued. I definitely want to look into that now. Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen it. I'm just, I'm interested in it. Uh, yeah. So Cohen did about ten or twelve movies, uh, auteur style. Yep. Uh, you haven't seen any of them. I, I really am curious to see It's Alive, especially, and uh, Black Caesar and the, the sequel to Black Caesar, which is something like See America and Die or no, Hell Up in Harlem. Okay. Yeah, no, Black Caesar looks like a good one. I want to see The Ambulance. Uh, I love a good Eric Roberts B movie. And with Larry Cohen, that sounds like a lot of fun. This whole, this, yeah, this is why I love doing this pod and why I, love, why I love us talking about the movies we talk about. I mean, last time we were talking about the Harmony Kameen movies, um, they're fun, they're interesting, they're, they're different in a different way. They're, they're certainly unconventional. And these also, like, they're just different from anything else. Oh, yeah. They're true auteur driven creativity. And it just makes them so special. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to, to introduce people to these. I mean, I'll probably have to wait till Halloween, you know, to get them <laughs> to sit down for one of them. But, oh, boy, I'm going to definitely dig through the Larry Cohen filmography because I think there's a lot more there to discover. Yeah, I think if you see uh, God Told Me To, mm-hmm. uh, let me know what you think of it because it is an odd movie. Like even in his favorite, <laughs> even his, in his over of like odd movies, this is a really odd movie. That <laughs> sounds good. I don't want to spoil anything about it, but it is okay. Uh, well, I guess you'll, it'll get spoiled if you watch the documentary, but I think you'll enjoy the documentary too. Cool. Um, and I think anyone listening will enjoy the documentary. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about Cohen? Uh, no, just what a fascinating guy I never heard of. Uh, this is this is exciting. You know, I'm always looking for new movies and here's an entire avenue unexplored. So it's a good time. Isn't that the best part about loving, loving movies or loving anything, yeah. really? It's like, wait, wait, I really like this. I want to see more by this guy. Yeah. Talk about a hidden gem. Oh, boy. <laughs> Oh, thank you.